Well, amen. Happy 4th of July. And, um, you know, I hope that you do have, as Pat was saying, some awesome plans, whether it's cooking out or, um, you know, watching fireworks or blowing up your neighborhood. I don't know. Um, but it's so good to see you. Um, I will say this as a disclaimer. If you are shooting fireworks, one, be safe. But two, if you shoot them past, let's say, 11 o'clock tonight, I will find you, okay? Um, because I don't know if it was like my house at like 1230, and we have a small dog, and she was shaking, and you know, whatever, you know, I don't know, you're probably like, I don't care for dogs, but I do, all right? So, uh, but on a serious note, just as we see that video, um, it is awesome to celebrate July 4th, even with the festivities, and thankful to live in a country, and really be thankful for the men and women who have fought for our country and our freedom, uh, but also, we need to be careful as believers that while we celebrate that, that our nationalism doesn't supersede our salvation in Jesus. And that we need to be more passionate about our freedom found in Christ than our patriotism. Um, so just be careful with that. So, so often um, we look at it and we think they're tied together. And while we are thankful and blessed by the circumstances in the country we live in, ultimately it is about Jesus. And um, it doesn't matter what country we live in, our salvation is found in him and him alone. And so that's something that we gather today and we can celebrate later our freedom um, and, you know, with the country, but also um, that this morning we worship and celebrate our freedom in Jesus. So, um, so with that being said, turn your Bibles to the book of Philippians. Um, it'll also be on the screens or if you're following along the app or through the Bible app, you can do that as well. And if you've been with us over the last, uh, this is our fifth week now, walking through this incredible letter written by the Apostle Paul. And um, I don't know about you, I just think it's so good that I know sometimes we can do like these little three-week short series that are more topical in nature, but I do feel like it's good to really dive in. And here we are, our fifth week, and we're only like hitting halfway through chapter two, all right, um, of this book. And for us just to slow down, to focus, and to really talk about some things as Paul's writing to this, uh, really this church plant that he started and, and doing that. And I think it's good as followers of Jesus to be able to just dig in to his word. Um, and I want to kind of start off this morning by saying this. I think following Jesus is hard, isn't it? I mean, it is super hard in the world that we live in. Um, it's, it's this daily battle, if you think about it, that each of us fight of this battle between our flesh and the Spirit of God. That if we are believers, if there's been a time where we surrender our life to Christ, that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And it's this, this tension that each of us face as believers between the flesh, our desires, and the Spirit, what, what the Spirit desires. And we saw this, I think, um, last week, or maybe it was the week before, that Scripture says, and Paul says this repeatedly, that what the flesh desires is contrary to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is contrary to the flesh. And it's just a battle you and I face, that we want our flesh to come out, we want our desires to come out at times, but then when it's uh, mirrored up and compared to the Spirit of God, we should be walking in step with the Spirit. So those things should be louder in our lives than our flesh. And it's just this constant uh, battle. And I think it would be fair to say that each of us in this room, we try our best to follow God. That 
we're trying to pray like we should. We're trying to talk to God and read scripture like we should. We're, we're trying to come to church like we should. All those things, we're trying not to lose it in front of our kids like we should or lose it in front of anybody for that matter, right? Uh, trying to keep our cool and be a great witness for the gospel as scripture points us to, but, it, but it's hard. And just to be real, I feel like at times, I don't know if you ever feel like this. I feel like sometimes when it comes to our relationship with Jesus, it's like being on a treadmill, all right? Now, obviously, by the looks of me, I don't like running, and I don't like being on a treadmill. Um, but if I do have to run, um, instead of running to the bathroom, um, that if I have to run, I want to do it outside where the scenery's changing. Because when you're on a treadmill, it's like boring, right? It's like you're running in place, but not really. You're doing all this work, and you're just— you're like, hey, neighbor, you're right there. We're not going anywhere, <laughs> right? And then you have that weird feeling that if you, when you get off of a treadmill, you feel like you're still moving, but like you're not. And you feel like you're, even though you're walking at a snail's pace because your legs hurt, you feel like you're walking 20 miles an hour. I don't know, uh, whatever the case may be. But I say that because a lot of times we focus so many times when it comes to our relationship with Jesus, we just focus and we get fixated on all the do's and the don'ts. And what ends up happening is we're on this treadmill and we make it so much about the do's and the don'ts that we forget about the grace of God. We forget about the relationship that we're called to have. And we focus on the tradition and the things and the rituals that it, what, one of two things really kind of happen. Either one, we're on this treadmill and it's almost like someone is cranking up the speed of all these do's and don'ts. And we get so worn out that oftentimes we just say, okay, I can't do it. I'm a failure. I can't keep this pace. I can't keep up. I feel like I haven't read my Bible in weeks. I haven't talked to God in a long time. I haven't been to church and God knows how long, you know, all these things. And so what we end up doing as a tendency is just jump off the treadmill and do our own thing. I can't tell you how many times, you know, not to blame it all on COVID, but through COVID, you know, everybody forms the habit of watching church at home and then you kind of have like online fatigue and then it's like, I'm kind of done with church. And I've just been in the habit of sleeping in and watching it online later and that kind of thing. But that's what I'm talking about, that we get so fatigued in our walk because we make it about all these do's and don'ts that we kind of just get off. Or the opposite is that we're running this race and hear me out, when we should be running the race, we should be doing these things. But oftentimes what ends up happening is we can be, so focused on the do's and don'ts that we actually become legalistic. And what, what I mean by that is we're doing the do's and the don'ts and anybody who's not on the same treadmill and at the same pace as us, we start to judge and point fingers like you're not good enough, you're not doing this, you know, all these different things. And it's just like this horrible rat race. And that aspect is really called religion. It's a ritual-based, works-based thing that we're trying to earn our way to God or earn our way to acceptance in the church or to people in the church or whatever the case may be. And what we see from the apostle Paul writing to this church that he planted in the city of Philippi is he is saying, hey, it needs to be gospel centered. It's not about all your works and what all these things that you have to do and don't do. It's really focused on the work of Jesus. And so he points back, we saw this last week, he's pointing right to this great example of Christ and saying, hey, this is what it's all about. And you have to think, the, the, the city of Philippi was so heavily influenced by Rome 
And at the time, Rome thought they were everything. They were like the elite empire. You know, like we have, we're Roman type thing. And so it was work-based. It was man-centered. It was all of these things. And so they live in this with a backdrop for Paul and Silas and Luke that are planning Philippi, the church, church there, that we see this Jewish influence that was very, uh, very much based on the Pharisees of, you got to do this, do this, do this. It's rules, rules, rules. And Paul is writing to the church and he's reminding them to keep their eyes on Jesus. It's not about all these do's and don'ts. It's about Jesus. Because once you kind of focus your relationship on Christ, on the do's and don'ts, it's a very dangerous territory. So I want to start off this, this morning with this kind of bottom line, if you will, to kind of project us into the right uh, direction. And I'll tell you this, this, there's not a typo in this, okay? I'm going to break it down for us, all right? So here's the statement, if you're taking notes. Following Jesus is more about moving forward in intimacy with Jesus, all right? Not intimacy with religion. Now you'd be like, what is intimacy? Even like some of the, the worship team were like, you misspelled that or whatever. And uh, for those of you who are not as smart as I am, just kidding, all right? Y'all are like, what in the world? That's not true. Y'all are a lot smarter than me. I actually had to look this up, all right? Intimacy is really a statement that you are like an inmate or enslaved to something. And I think that describes our traditions of religion a lot, that we can be enslaved or an inmate to the tradition and rituals of religion. Now, if you've been at church at any given point in time or have family members you have, you probably have heard a story that's something along this line, but so many of us can be or, or, or have experiences of a church that almost have what I would call golden calves, all right? They have these rituals that are these things that take it precedent over a relationship with Jesus. For instance, that's my seat. You can't sit there. We've done this program. You can't get rid of it. We've done it our whole lives. Don't get rid of the pews. If you, go, if you get rid of the pews, this church is going to hell. You know, it's all of those things. You know what I'm talking about? And, and so we, we have these kind of religious things. And what ends up happening is we become enslaved to those things. And those things become the priority of our relationship or our faith instead of our intimacy with Jesus. And at the end of the day, what's most important is not the traditions of the church or rituals that have been passed down over time. What's most important is, are you and I growing in intimacy with Jesus? That's following Jesus. It's hard. But at the end of the day, are you and I following Jesus in such a way that we're growing closer to him and becoming more intimate to him. And Paul is all about writing and reminding and saying, hey, here's how you do that. So let's read this together. We're picking up in chapter 2, um, verse 12. And I'm going to read through it, and then we're going to come back, dissect it a little bit. I'm going to get super nerdy at the front end. I'm just warning you because there's some text analysis that I think is important to help us understand this. But in verse 12, follow along with me. It'll be on the screens. Paul says, that, uh, says this, Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Now get this line. We're going to come back to this. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you 
both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Does that sound familiar to anyone? I don't know. <laughs> that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice. Now there's a lot to, in, um, to unpack there, but the first thing, if you're taking notes, that Paul is challenging the church there is to take responsibility. What we mean by this is that he's calling the church to own their faith. Now, for many years, I did student ministry, and I can't tell you how many times students would graduate high school, and they don't know why they believe what they believe. They believe a certain thing. Maybe it's just been passed down. It's like, that's what the pastor said. That's what the student guy said. That's what my small group leader, uh, leader said. And so what ends up happening, I saw it over and over, is because they didn't know why they believed what they believed, they go off to college, and as soon as their faith is challenged with something, it just crumbles right in front of them. It's like, I, don't, I didn't know that, or I didn't really think about that. I just kind of believe that because my parents believe that. And I think so often that can happen, that our faith is really kind of inherited from our parents. Our, our parents were, were Baptists, and so now we're Baptists. We don't really know the ins and outs of being Baptist or whatever the case may be, that we kind of do that. You know, the way I like to um, see it, I'm not saying this is a healthy way, but for many years when I was first able to vote, I voted the way my parents voted because that's just like, they said they were this party. So that's the way I voted. I didn't even know. I'm like, that's how you're supposed to vote. And then you become smart and you're like, okay, now I understand political views. Now I can make my own informed decision, not based on just because my parents voted this party or that, that now I can understand wh why that is. And, and so Paul is saying, we need to own our faith. That if we want the gospel to move forward, that's what this entire series is about. If we want to see lives radically changed and the kingdom of God to advance, we need to own our faith. We need to take responsibility for our faith. And Paul says it this way, which from the surface, we'll unpack this, sounds one way, but he says we need to work out, he says this to the church, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now on the surface level, that kind of sounds like we're responsible for our salvation, that we can work it out. We can, it can be works-based. We can earn salvation to God, earn our way to eternal life in heaven. That's not what Paul is saying. Because if you uh, analyze this text, and not to get geeky, but I'm going to for a little bit, when anywhere in scripture, in verse 12, it starts this way, therefore, when that word is there, it's, it's, it's telling that what's about to happen or what's about to be said there's something that precedes it that's important. Like, therefore, okay, all this other stuff, therefore this. And so when we see in verse 12, when Paul says, therefore, he's pointing back to verses 9 and 11, which read, we said this last week, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name, talking about Jesus, bestowed on him the name that's above every name. 
So that that name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess. So because of that, because God exalted Jesus, therefore, right? Therefore, he's saying, obey and work out your own salvation. Now, what's tricky about this, okay? Now, this is where I'm kind of nerdy. That section starts with a therefore, so you have to go before the therefore. Does that make sense? Okay, so you have a therefore that goes to a therefore that then takes you to a, you know, before that. So why did, um, why was Jesus exalted? So you have to go back to really verse six, that even though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant. And being in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, all right, domino effect here. Because Jesus humbled himself, emptied himself, and became a servant to the point of death, death on the cross, because of that, God exalted him to be the name above all names. And because of that, we can obey and now work out your own salvation. So in layman's term, what Paul is saying when he says, work out your own salvation, it's not based on our works and earning eternity. What he's saying is that salvation has been granted to you through Jesus. And that has transformed you internally. Now it's you and I, it's our responsibility to show that salvation externally. So when he says, work out your salvation, that means we need to put in the work to follow Jesus. We have to be, uh, be people that are praying and talking to God. Be digging into the scripture. Be sh- uh, serving other people. Let other people see that God has radically transformed my life. Now it's contagious. That makes sense? Okay, everybody can breathe. All right, that was the text nerdy seminary side. But that's just what he's saying. He's not saying, hey, do all your works and then you are in heaven. He's saying God's done that work. He's done that work inside of you. Now live a life that proves it. Live a life where people can see it, that the salvation that has been granted to you through the blood of Jesus is, has been manifested in your life in such a way you're going to live out of that. That it's not some secret, it's not some bubble that you're living in, that you are going to live that out. So he says, work that out. Why? Because God is working in you. He's working in you. He's giving you wisdom. He's giving you discernment. He's giving you those things through the, through the Spirit and do the work and the will of God for his good pleasure. So through our lives, we should be doing those things to please God. And so that's what Paul is saying. That's what he's communicating to the church of Philippi. And that all happens when we take responsibility and have this genuine experience with God to go out and tell people. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So it's this ownership of faith that says, okay, this is what God did for me. Now I'm gonna do good works so other people can see my good works, not based on me, but I can point them to God, who our, our Father who's in heaven. I have this kind of as a side note. When our relationship with God is personal, it becomes a priority. If we don't look at our relationship with God as something that's personal, it's just kind of distant, it's kind of institutionalized. Hey, we'll just do that at church on Sunday. It doesn't become a priority for us. But when we say, this is who I am, 
This is what God has done for me, and I want people to experience the same thing, and it becomes personal. It's a priority. So when we miss our time reading scripture, it's like, man, I, I, I shouldn't have missed that, or I should have prayed that day, or I see, I'm more aware of these opportunities to tell people about Jesus because it's personal with us. It's who we are. It's our identity. Our identity is in what Jesus has done for us, not in what we're trying to do in, in the world to be good people. That it is um, Christ's work in us and, and what it's done internally for us to work out externally. And so that way, the gospel actually advances through us because it's personal. It's something that means something to us. And so that's taking responsibility. The second thing that we see, and I'm going to kind of hopefully connect the dots here, is that Paul is saying that they need to trust in God. Now, we see that because if you think about it, he says this in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, if you think about this, isn't complaining really not trusting God? I mean, that's really what it boils down to. Complaining is saying something took place or something happened that didn't go the way I planned it or the way I wanted it to happen. And it should have happened that way because that's what I wanted and, just be, and it's pretty much saying, God, I, I want it to go according to my plan, not yours. And, and so Paul is connecting this and saying, do all things without grumbling or complaining. Why? That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Now, there's a connection here because essentially what Paul is saying, when you complain, when you grumble, and when you dispute, you're just like everybody else. You fit in with people who don't know Jesus. And we know that that is not our calling. That as believers, God calls us to be set apart, to be ambassadors or representatives. He says in 2 Corinthians, we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. So as God is working through us, we are able to share the gospel to other people as ambassadors of Christ. Now think about this. As if, like an ambassador of the United States represents the United States in a foreign country. Think about it that way for us. As ambassadors of Christ, as believers, we represent Jesus, hopefully, to other people. That when we come encounter with them, and if we're grumbling and complaining and disputing everything, we fit right in. We don't look set apart. We don't look any different than anybody else in that. That there is a connection between the words that we say and the impact that we have. Our words are powerful. And they can either build up the name of Jesus or tear it down. Now, I don't know about you. Have you ever met someone who all they do is complain? It is like the most exhausting thing ever. <laughs> are you with me? It's like, I'm like, I just want to tell them, like, will you just be quiet? Like, you have nothing nice to say. You're like, you remember that old, like, SNL skit, like, Debbie Downer? Like, she would come in and be like, and be like, wah, 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 you know? You, you meet people, that, that's all they do is complain. That really, what Paul is saying, when we see in Scripture, that should not be in the characteristic of a believer. And unfortunately, it is, isn't it? Unfortunately, I know many believers that complain, and they complain about the stupidest things. And I'm like, you're really going to complain about that? And I wrote this down, and I'm just going to be transparent. I'm probably going to step on some no, um, toes, nose, that too. All right, 
So I'm going to step right on your face, okay? <laughs> but if you think about it, like, I'm just going to be really raw because this is what God's just working in me and teaching me. And I think that's the best way um, to just speak God's word is at, at a place or in a place of transparency. But I wrote this down. It's on the screen. If you think about it, every complaint about the world inhibits our opportunity to reach the world. Now, I'm going to be really raw and transparent here. I want you to think about that statement for a second. Every complaint about the world inhibits our opportunity to reach the world. Now, we know, and I've said this over and over, we don't live in a Christian nation. Our entire world is broken and fallen away from Jesus. It's sinful, all right? That's the world that we live in. And unfortunately, our culture, because of their lostness and not knowing Jesus, builds up walls for the gospel. Things that are unbiblical, right? Things that go against what Jesus said. Things that are against the Ten Commandments. Whatever the case, whatever it is in Scripture, there's so many things in culture that go against that. I've said this before. We should not be surprised by that. We should not be like, oh my, how dare they do that? How dare our school teach that or say this or what? We shouldn't be surprised at that. But as believers, what we should be doing is instead of building up more walls to climb in the walls that the culture already has built, we should be building bridges, right? We should be pointing people to Jesus. And so when we complain about the world, it really inhibits things. Now, I'm not saying there are things that you, that you and I believe that are against Scripture, all right? I'm not saying don't believe those things or have an opinion about it. I'm not saying that. But we have to be very careful with our words. For instance, okay, being fully transparent. When I hear believers say things like, all these homosexuals, they're just pushing their agenda. Is that building a bridge or is that building up another wall? Now, I'm not saying homosexuality isn't a sin, but it's a sin just like any other sin. And so the consequences and the form of it might look different, but we have to be careful with our words. When we say things like, and I said this in the height of political season, if you voted that way, you're going to hell. I saw that on Facebook. Now, I don't know about you. I've looked in, in, in scripture. I've never seen anything that says you have to vote a certain way to be a Christian. All right? Now, we all have opinions. And some of us will say, well, I think this about this president. And the person will, you know what? I guarantee you, for every person that thinks this way about this person, there's another person in this room that thinks the opposite way, all right? So we're going to have those things. And, and the thing is that we have to be careful with our words. When we say things like, I wish they would just shut up about black lives matter. All lives matter. They just need to be quiet about that. It's all this Marxism. Are you building a bridge? are building a wall. Because we have to be very careful with our words. And I'm going to tell you, Marxism, Black Lives Matter, there's so many definitions of all kinds of CRT and intersexuality and all these different things, whatever thing, there's so many different definitions out there. All I know is that what comes out of our mouths need to, need to be things that point people to Jesus other than just bashing the culture all the time. Because you and I know Christians are, um, are understood and people know us for what we're against and what we're for. And I want to be someone that is, that is seen as being for the gospel of Jesus. 
And once again, I'm not saying don't have, you, you can have an opinion, all right? We're a Baptist church. Like where 20 people are gathered, there's 4,000 opinions, okay? And so that's just true. And I'm not saying that. And we need to look at truth and we need to live for truth. But we cannot make statements like that that build up walls instead of building bridges to point people to the gospel. And so that's what Paul is saying. If you do that, when you do this, you, like when you're grumbling and disputing, he's essentially saying, you're not blameless. You're not going to be innocent. You're not going to be without blemish. And you're not going to shine as lights into the world. He's saying, be a light into a dark world. And that comes from us trusting God saying, God, I don't understand it. I don't know why our world is doing this. I don't know why the government's making these decisions. I don't know why my neighbor believes this or voted this way. I don't know any of that. And I, I'll, it's, it's not from God, whatever, but I'm gonna trust you. And I'm gonna look for opportunities to point people to Jesus and telling them how they should vote and how they should believe and how they're wrong and how they're going to hell isn't the best way to do it. So I point them to the hope of Christ and by being light in a dark place. And so we have to trust in God. And third, in closing, we have to live with purpose. Paul says this, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. How? Holding fast to the word of life. You and I as believers, our purpose in life is to be light in a very dark place. Now, I think we can all agree we live in a dark world. And I share this, it's probably been a couple years now, but anytime light enters into a dark place, it takes away fear and insecurity and the loss and sense of direction, all those things. And it says, you know what? It brings direction. It brings security. It shows the way. It gives um, hope. All those different things. The light does, and that we are called to be lights. And so often what we end up doing, I forget where the passage is, I think it's in Matthew, where Jesus says so often we're like, we put like a, a bowl over the light, you know, or a lampshade on the light. And we're like, I don't want it to shine. And Paul's telling the church of Philippi, shine, be lights in a pagan, twisted and crooked generational world. Be different, look different, believe different. You want to know what's killing the church? What's killing the church are people who claim to be Christians that don't live according to the gospel, that are frauds and fakes and say one thing. I mean, I'll tell you the biggest pet peeve I have in ministry is when you see the news and it's like this one pastor that like, to like the media and to the world like represents all of Christianity. And I'm like, well, you just be quiet. Like, why'd you pick this guy, you know? And, and but the same is true with all lay people, all churches, all Christians who are involved in a church anywhere that can pour into and, and paint a different gospel than the one that is in scripture. And so as we're lights, let us br help bring hope, bring direction, bring security in the name of Jesus. And I love this. This is what Paul says. Even if, if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Lamest term, he's saying, if I, just, if I die because of your faith, man, I'm happy. I want to lay my life on the line. It goes back to the life is Christ, uh, death is gain that we saw at the end of chapter one. He's saying, it is everything. I'm, I'm willing to give my life because I'm living with that kind of purpose to move the gospel forward. 
In closing, I just want to read this. I think it's so powerful um, from King David in Psalm 63. He um, writes this incredible psalm. If you, if you know who King David is, great king, had his faults um, with Bathsheba. But he reads this. He was in the wilderness of Judah. And this, to me, just connected with, this should be our prayer. That if we want to be lights, if we want to own our faith, if we, if we really want to trust in God, this should be our prayer this morning. He says this, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. And my flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed, and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, and your right hand upholds me. Man, I love those words from David, pretty much saying, I'm gonna seek you, God, with everything that I have. You're everything, you're powerful, you saved my life, and I wanna worship you with the way I live and the things that come off of my lips. What an amazing way that we can pray to be lights for Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, man, following you, God, is hard in a, a broken world. It is. It is hard. But we know that through your spirit as believers, you give us the strength and the boldness and the power to live for you. That in the midst of that battle of our flesh and your spirit, God, let us walk in step with your spirit in such a way that we take ownership and responsibility for our faith, that it is personal to us. That God, that we trust in you in such a way that while the, the world around us is falling apart, doesn't look like the lives that we should live because of the sin that's destroyed. God, let us be lights, not complaining and grumbling and just reacting, but let us point people to a hope in you. And that God, that as we live on purpose, that we are lights in a very dark place. So just in a few seconds in this time that we're given before we close in worship, Father, I just want to give some space to each of us that are here this morning to really pray two things. One, to say thank you so much, Jesus, for your work on the cross for salvation, for the blood that was shed. And there might be someone here that for the very first time is praying that. And I pray that they would speak to me or someone here and just make that decision known so we can help them to have a relationship with you. And so let each of us thank you for Jesus, but also pray the prayer, God, just use us. Let us be a light in this dark place. So just in a few seconds, I wanna give some space for each of us to talk to you, God.
God, thank you for sending your one and only son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins and his blood to be shed so that we didn't have to try to earn salvation by good works and rituals, but it was by his work on the cross. So forgive us of our sins and allow us to be used by you, Father, to make a difference in our community and in our workplaces. I just pray specifically that each of us will have an opportunity this week. And who knows how awesome it would be that this time next week, that so many of us in this room have stories about leading someone to you because we're, we want to shine as lights in a dark place. Give us that boldness and that wisdom to do that. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and let's close and worship together.